Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to this week's episode of the E3 Podcast. I am really excited to have Ross on. I did a seminar with Ross on small practice buildings for my alma mater, Penn State, a few weeks ago. And we have been talking a lot recently about training and architecture school and what that means. Uh, and he's an educator at Penn state. And so I wanted to have him come back on and talk more about that, his past, his background, what led him to this. So Ross, tell us who you are and what you've been up to. Hi. <laughs> um, so I am the current career advisor, uh, at the Stuckman school. I'm also, um, architecture faculty member, um, but a lot of different circumstances led to where I am today. I started out at Virginia Tech um, for my undergraduate, for my Bachelor of Architecture in uh, 1999, and I graduated in 04. And basically, I went straight from my uh, bachelor's uh, degree straight to working at the same place that I interned for several years, um, where they kept me on as basically a... Uh, an intern, even though I had a degree. So they kept paying me as an intern and I casually would, you know, touch, uh, tap on the shoulder of, of my boss and be like, Hey, uh, I have a degree now. Do you mind um, maybe, you know, giving me a little bit more money or a salary or something like that? And they said, you know, sure, we'll, we'll think about doing that. And after some time I realized like, this is, you know, it's, it's great to be here, but um, I need to move on. So I basically bounced from that architecture firm, which focused on residential construction and, and uh, renovation. And I moved to another firm in Miami that was uh, focused on high-rise development. And this is in the early 2000s. So this was a huge building boom happening in South Florida at this time with uh, tons of condominiums and hotels and things like that. And that firm was fantastic. I mean, there were about 40 people. Um, and I actually have a, a funny story. I don't know if we'll, we'll talk about that maybe later, but there's a funny story there about how I got thrown into the fire as an as a still kind of new hire or a recent grad. Um, but the experiences there were fantastic. And um, I ended up moving on from there to a different firm in central Florida, just because I ended up moving from Miami to um, Gainesville, Florida. The firm I worked at there was a smaller firm. There were about 10 or 15 people. Uh, they focused on university and residential work. And that was right around the time that um, the housing bubble kind of burst, it was just before that. It was like 06, 07, um, but I was fortunate that that industry in, in higher ed and medical was not um, affected as significantly by that. The fact that I was at this firm actually, what was interesting about that is um, the firm that I had just left that I loved in Miami, um, they got hit significantly hard because they were doing condos and hotels and they went from 40 people to like 20 people to out of business within, I think, a year. And I was, I, I was gone just because I had moved just randomly. It was, it was just a set of circumstances that led me there. And then after that firm, I ended up moving up to State College. We were talking about this before um, we were recording that my wife um, opened up a company here for uh, a tutoring company in State College. So that brought us up to Central PA. I worked at a firm here that focused also on medical and um, K through 12 uh, uh, projects. And um, all that experience led me to make the decision that I did not want to be an architect or not practice architecture anymore. I think we were also talking about that before that I got a little bit tired. Not tired is not the word I'm looking for. Um, I just didn't see myself continuing on that path forever. I, I saw like where I was headed and what I could be doing. And it just, I was no longer excited about being an architect, about practicing as an architect, but I still had all this knowledge and all this experience with it. And I still loved designing and creating and doing those things. But the day-to-day -day stuff, I got pretty tired of. And I found out that my strengths were in organization and project management and things that you're not really taught in school. You know, like I was taught in, at Virginia Tech, as I mentioned before, that I was taught as this like rock star designer that I was gonna be like the big, you know, the big architect that was gonna make all the decisions and design the built environment and do all these cool things. 
And don't get me wrong, I, I, that was something I wanted to do still, but I found that my strengths actually lied in conversations, in project meetings, in uh, organization, in just the, the layout of a project, the bones of it, if that makes sense. Like, so the design part kind of got pushed to the back and I was designing the structure of these things, if, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, it actually is. There's so many things there to kind of leap off and jump in together. You know, the first one being, and I say this a lot is, you know, architects aren't good at all of the different types of architecture. So it's really interesting that you tried all of the different ones, maybe not every single one, but you tried a lot of different avenues to see like, okay, well, where do I fit? What do I like? You know, because you can be really good at one thing. Um, it always drives me crazy. The people um, whose firms do uh, something and residential, right? Because they're not really residential architects unless they have someone or a whole residential team, right? Residential is a completely different animal from commercial. The same with healthcare, the same with government work, the same with skyscrapers, the same with um, my best friend from architecture school went on to work for Moshe Safti and they did some really cool buildings, right? The work that he was doing wasn't anything close to what I was, was, was doing. I mean, they were designing opera houses and things like, and I was doing residential structures, like so, so totally different um, in, in the aspects of what you do. So it's cool that you did a bunch of those things because um, the other thing that, that came to mind while you were talking was that puts you in a very unique position for what you're doing now with career opportunities and something we've talked a lot about on the building science and beer show. Um, and in our practice is people don't know what to get into in the fields of construction because they don't know what they're good at, right? It took you several years to figure out like, this is the thing that I'm actually really good at, that I, that I enjoy, that I want to do every day. And maybe why we have a shortage in the building industry is because people don't know that, you know, you could be great at project management that could give you a huge career in the building industry. It's not just swinging a hammer or not just architecture or not just engineering. Like if you're not good at math or something, doesn't necessarily mean you can't do that. And so you're in a really unique position because you've done a lot of different things to be the career advisor that you are now, because you, you get to see so many different people and help them maybe realize sooner, I don't know, or help them evaluate yeah. the things that they like or enjoy. So, well, yeah. And I, I think this idea, what I said before that when you're in school, you have this certain vision of what, what you're going to be, you know? And I think that there's a lot of pressure on students and just people from a very young age to kind of figure out what they want to do so early. Right. And it takes time. And I heard a few of your other podcasts, people mentioning this, that like, it just takes time to figure out what you're good at. And, you know, I got into the, when I was in the field working, I distinctly remember one of my project managers took me to a job site and he did this as kind of a test. It was one of my first weeks there. And he just walked around the site with me and he pointed at things and said, what is that? Like, what are we looking at? What, where is that going to go? What is that made out of? And I knew nothing. I like, I think it was kind of his way of being like, you know, nothing, like I'm going to teach you this stuff. And I just, you know, I thought I was going to be so, you know, really good, <laughs> good at this stuff, but I, I didn't know anything. And it's because those details, you, you're just not really taught those things. Um, and I found along with this idea of organization and, and project management, I found that I really enjoyed how things got put together. But when I was in school, I was not interested in those things. Like I could have chosen a few courses about building and construction and, and things like that. And I, I, I thought I was not gonna be good at that or interested in that. And then when I was in the field and, and working on these details and, and going back to my desk and then going to the site and seeing how things got put together, I found myself being very interested in that process in the, you know, to use a fancy architect-y school word, like the tectonics, like how, get, how the stuff got put together. Um, was super interesting. And the advice that he gave me that day has stuck with me for so long. And I use it when I'm teaching and also with the career advising is to always go back to think about the order of construction and how things are put together, right? Like you start with the foundation, you build up, you know, you do the, the, the flooring and then you, you build the walls or the, the studs. And the, like, basically like thinking about how those things get, get put together really helped me at a young age and has actually continued when I 
teach how things get put together in my studio. So that's yeah. One of my favorite classes uh, was a building materials class that I took with Scott Wing uh, back in the day, and he. I don't know if you still, I would assume you still don't have these parts and pieces 15 years later, but he got somebody to donate a bunch of two by material and bolts and they drilled a bunch of holes in it. And each team had to build something out of these two buys and bolts and the hands-on tactical experience of like, okay, how does this thing really stand up? Somebody built a maze, somebody built a pirate ship, um, to be honest with you, I don't even remember what my group built, but I remember the class and thinking like that was one of the coolest classes. Now, um, my dad's a dairy farmer. My grandfather was a contractor. I grew up doing Habitat for Humanity type stuff. So I came into it maybe with a little bit of building knowledge, but I still wouldn't say I, I knew a lot. Um, but yeah, they don't teach you that stuff in architecture school, which I think is the point of internship. But mm -hmm. I don't know if it's part of the progress of the field of architecture where you go into the tools then, right? And so you kind of skip, I don't want to say skip, but you you jump right into the technology where maybe if you're working with a firm who has a, you know, an older principal, they don't know how to do the fancy zoomy things that you're doing. But if they can't get into the program to see what you drew, they also don't know if you can build it, right? So it's this right. weird disconnect between the tools the training, right? Because my experience was the architecture school was to teach you how to think outside the box, not necessarily to teach you how to build all the things, but to, to, to get you to use your mind creatively. And that then internship to me was supposed to be how you learn to then build things. So you've, you've learned how to think outside the box. Now you'll learn how to build things. Then you'll go on to be a successful architect. That was my understanding right. at 18 when I decided to go to architecture school. So, well, and, and by the way, there, um, Marcus Schaefer, um, who probably wasn't there when you were at Penn state, but he, he teaches a materials and like construction type course. And they, if you follow, um, Stuckman on uh, social media, they post these really cool, he makes these bridges or has his students build these bridges out of uh, re like recycled materials. And, you know, some of you, some of them are using like yarn and thread and rope and others are using um, harder materials. And they just posted them like, I think last week for their final presentations. And it was, it's really interesting. He walks across the bridges at the end, uh, suspended in the air. So he, it better work or your professor's about to, you know, fall. So um, it's nice that they teach those things. And I think it's a matter of, and I said this before that as a student, sometimes you can choose your areas of interest, right? And like, if you don't think like I, in my case, I didn't think that was going to be interesting to me. So I went into the more theoretical courses and the, the, um, the less like hands-on type courses. Um, but then later in life, I, I found out through practice that I was interested in those things. It's just, I didn't think I would be interested in them. So Which I, makes you wonder at, at 18, right? Do you really know what you're getting into? And you decide to go to architecture school at 18 um, and you make it through maybe the first couple of years, right? So first year, I think we started with a hundred students the year that I, I went to Penn State. And by second year, we had like half as many. <laughs> we had 50 maybe because that first year you get a real take of what architecture school is. And that does kind of take some people who are like, yeah, nope not interested in this. And then we graduated maybe 50 people, I think, or 30, 30 something in yeah. my class. And so, um, you know, but, but at 18, do you really know, right? Like you said, I didn't think I would be interested in that. So it makes you wonder, does the architecture curriculum have to expose you to a bunch of different things? Like does like in middle school where everybody has to take shop class or they used to, I'm probably dating myself now, right? Because I think a lot of these classes aren't available at high schools anymore, but everybody had to take shop class, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and everybody had to take home ec, which I also think they don't do anymore. But like, if you had experience and, and this is something that we've talked about, I did a webinar actually earlier this week on women in the, in the construction and design industry and, you know, how to get more women interested in it and like are we taught the same things, you know, and it came up that just knowing that it's available, right. That it's okay to do it. It's, it's like the first barrier to entry, right? right? Like just knowing, Hey, it's, it's perfectly good. Come on out. Here's some other people who are doing it. And so it, it does make you wonder if 
instead of having the option to take those classes, which you were like, yeah, I don't think I'm interested in that. Maybe you have to take one. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish, and I feel like we should know this about architects. Like if they go through the number of architects that are out there, how many of them own their own business, right? There's a lot of sole practitioner architects. I wish they made us take business classes because I don't teach you anything about running a business as an architect, but there are a lot of independent architects. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, so after I um, worked for a while and then I decided to go to grad school at, at Penn State, you know, you choose a research topic for your graduate thesis. And I was exactly interested in what you're talking about here in this idea of, if you remember, and it's still the same way now, pro practice, the course that's supposed to teach you about what the industry is like, how it is to run a business, contracts, all the things that are not usually taught in a studio. I was super interested in, okay, that course, no one cared about that course when I was in school. They thought it was like a waste of time. The guy who taught it was a dinosaur. Like there was nothing interesting in there. I didn't care about it at all. And then I quickly realized, oh my God, that was super important information. I should have paid attention. So my question for my thesis, and this is now 10 years ago, so I'm probably butcher it or not remember everything exactly well, but um, was how much pressure is put on the pro practice course in regards to um, the NAB criteria. So accreditation for the, for the university or for the, for the program. Um, And I found in my research that a third at that time, NAB has changed, but at that time, a third of the requirements for accreditation involved teaching of the profession and contracts and negotiation and all, all that sort of stuff. And almost every single undergraduate university that's accredited put all of those requirements into that one three credit course, sometimes two courses at the very end of your undergraduate program, fourth year, fifth year, something, something like that. So my research then evolved into like, what are some um, forward thinking or some models that are not that, that are, that are thinking outside the box in regards, how do, how do you teach the profession um, in regards to running a business and things like that. So I, I did a few case studies on um, what are some, some ways to, to not just put all the pressure on a three credit class. So yeah. that was, well- yeah. And I love the class that you are teaching now, which Austin talked about in, in his, uh, in his podcast that he did with me, um, about where you get your engineering students, your mechanical students and your architects or your landscape architects together, and they have to create a project because one of the most important things that you can probably teach is how to integrate all of the trades together when you get out, right? That's a really important part of, of a successful project. And so teaching that and maybe pro practice together would be, yeah. you know, that's would what would be so cool. Cause that's now I, I get it. I totally understand. I hear you. The guy who taught my pro practice class, also a dinosaur. I wasn't at all interested, you know, basically they scare you about liability insurance, which is right. when you go out on your own and you're doing business. If you understand anything about business, it's just another bill that you pay something that you have. Like it's not, nearly as scary as people make it sound if you know what you're doing. So you hopefully never get sued. I mean, obviously there's, there's, you know, there's always a chance, right. But like the reality is because we didn't know anything about business, it was like, it just seemed like this really big, scary thing, which then maybe made a lot of us think like, I'll never work for myself. Like that seems really scary. I'll never do that. But the reality that we know about architects in the profession is a lot of them do work for themselves. So Mm -hmm. even if you don't think you're going to at that time, I mean, I know I graduated with someone who was like, I'd never work for myself. Like, why would I do that? I always want to work for a firm. And I think it was a year or two ago, she reached out to me and she's like, I'm going out on my own. Do you have any advice for me? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, the person who was like, I'd never do that is now considering doing that so it's clearly a thing that happens yeah and then the the question this goes back into the other topic that we were discussing is like how much stuff could you possibly cover though in a five-year program right like to run a business and to like learn about how things get put together and 
being a designer and theoretic, like it, I understand like there's so much pressure and that's why I think if you can figure out what you're into earlier, you can kind of study those avenues, but then, you know, as you get older, you, you, you fill in the, the missing pieces and that's kind of just part of the practice of it. Um, now that I'm in academia, I think I defend it a little bit more with the, in regards to that before on the outside, I'm like, Oh, they don't teach you what you need to know. But now I'm like, I understand like that's a lot of pressure to put on a program to teach them, to teach students all of this stuff. Well, and you only have so much time to make right. an impact and like project management, which might be the one thing that you're super good at, not something that's really taught in school because it's really hard to get access to all of the things that you'd actually need to teach a full-on project management class. Like even in the construction industry where, where students have gone to school for construction and have taken project management class. Like I talk to contractors that I work with who are like, that's, you know, cost estimating and project management is like something you don't really know how to do until you've built several projects. Right. Like it's just, you know, and so you may like, so as much as we talk about teaching that in school and architecture school, like at 18, I didn't, you know, I mean, even in my young professional career, I didn't know enough to do some of those things. Like those are skills that you just learn after you've worked in an industry for a while. So I think this is a good time to talk. Remember when I was talking about my, quickly talking about my career path, that one story I said I would come back to about that firm in Miami that I was working at. So this is a good, good time to talk about this because it's about learning and how you learn these things. I had just come from my, basically from the summer internship place that was not going to pay me um, as a, you know, full-time employee essentially, or just, there was paying me hourly. I went to this other firm and they could see the potential. They were like, okay, he's a young architect, a young designer, you know, he's going to kind of work his way up and become a project manager here along with, you know, our, our, our um, designers. So they had me basically shadowing one of their project managers who was handling a, a high rise condo renovation in Miami. It was a building that was built in the sixties that needed an update and it gutted the whole thing. And they were just, basically it was down to the bones of the building and they were just going to change the facade, change everything. Uh, so I went with her to the fir- to one project meeting. Uh, again, I was going to kind of be groomed to become the project manager of this because she was, by the way, she was pregnant. Um, so they were like, once she's on maternity leave, like he'll kind of take over in, in a few months. Well, we went to one meeting and then she apparently, she went into labor, into labor two months or actually three months early, I think, very, very early. So she had, she had to go, right? So she was, she was gone after the first week that I was study, studying under her to become the project manager. So they were like, okay, well, you'll go to the next meeting then. And I'm like, I, I've never been to project meetings before. I have no idea. And I'm going to go meet the developer, the interior designer, the engineers, the landscape architects, all these people were at these meetings. And it's me, a 20, at the time, 22, maybe, 23, maybe year old about to go to this meeting with no project management experience. And I was freaking out and my bosses, it was hilarious because they, they couldn't care. They were just like, they had so many projects that I don't think they, they had the choice. So they said, just go. And if you don't know, if you don't know anything, if you don't know the answer, just say, I'll get back to you and like, write it down. <laughs> That's all they said. That's literally all they told me to do. And I'm like driving, you know, by myself to this meeting. And I, you know, it was like a deer in the headlights. Um, but getting thrown into the fire like that, not to use too many cliches here, but getting thrown into the fire like that was the best way to learn about how the dynamic worked between the developer and the architect and the engineers and like exactly like what sort of things get a project moving forward. And like I said at the beginning, like I found my strengths were in project management and this experience taught me that very quickly. Like I, I was able to adapt super quick and um, these people love me because I respond to emails quickly. And a lot of people in South Florida do not, or in general, I don't think people respond to emails super quickly, but I would respond quickly and get them the information they needed. And by the time we were like done with that project, like they were sad that I was off that team because you know, we, afterwards we, we go to different teams or different projects. And um, I left a pretty good impact because they wanted to continue working with me on that. But that's a great way to learn is just getting thrown in there and just figuring out what, you know, what to do. And you learn about your strengths very quickly in that scenario. Yeah. 
I mean, not that you want to say like, oh, it's great to throw everybody into the fire, but you were forced to ask questions because you didn't know as opposed to being afraid to ask questions because you didn't know, which I think is a great position to be in. Um, In the same respect, I didn't learn a lot about building science until after I was already licensed as an architect. The market got bad, you know, just like you said, you were lucky in the firm that you were working for. Um, I worked for a small residential firm in Maine and, you know, they're just, they're people weren't building houses. And so I was like, well, well, what am I really interested in? And so my thesis was all about consumerism and how do we take stuff that we have and recycle it into art or something else that we can do with it, like keep it out of the landfill. How do we um, reestablish communities where an industry has left, but there's still a community there with skilled workers, but nothing to, you know, to, to work on because the, the plant isn't there. Um, and so my thesis was all about that. And then I went to uh, Washington, D.C., and I worked for a couple of years for a high-end residential firm, which was wonderful and lovely, but I realized that they didn't care about environmental things so much, right? And I mean, it was in the 2005, 2006, and so you know there was a big boom, um, but I was interested. So I took the lead exam while I was there. And then when my husband wanted to move to Maine to be closer to, to family, I specifically looked for a firm that did more energy efficient work. Cause I was like, something about this is calling to me, but I still felt like, because I was young in my career, I didn't know a lot. And so then when the market crashed and there was money coming into the States to do weatherization, I started doing that where I could get into existing houses, see how they were put together, understand buildings. And that was invaluable, but I spent three months following my mentor around and basically all I was allowed to do was schlep stuff. Like I just had to follow her around and learn. And that was the best experience ever was I just got to see literally everything that she did because Mm -hmm. I was just with her 24 seven. I had every experience there. And that was when I really started to understand and then take more certifications and understand the physics of building and building science and, and everything. But I think there's something to that, right. That getting thrown into the fire and asking questions because you just literally have to. And also having a mentor who's phenomenal, who you just, you're, you're able to emulate. And I think most architecture is somewhere in between those two things. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And you can be at extremes of those. And the job I had after this, this one, where I said, when I moved to central Florida into Gainesville, it was, so this idea of being thrown into the fire, it was one of those places where we had talked about this previously that um, the management was very, it was a very toxic work environment um, from, from a management perspective, but the, the employees, everybody, all of us were like, you know, we were very friendly with each other and like, we had a very good um, relationship, like working together, but the management was so disconnected from us that it was a, it was a difficult situation, but the deadlines, it was just deadline after deadline after deadline, over, like overtime, 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 like once one was done, you would just hop on another and there was no end at sight. You know, looking back, I learned a ton from that job, but it was, you know, emotionally and physically just draining to the point where, you know, I, it wouldn't, it was just an unhealthy environment. And luckily, you know, I ended, I, I got married and then that's when we decided to move up here, um, this, to central, to, to, to happy Valley. And, um, I'm glad I got, I got out of that environment, but that taught me a lot of things about what not to do <laughs> in regards to managing people. Or I, I use that for how I teach now with, I, I use a lot of positive reinforcement when I'm teaching instead of negative reinforcement. Um, because that was, that job was very, everything was just negative, negative, negative all the time. And that played a big role in how I teach now with just making sure that people understand that like, you don't have to be mean to people to get them to do their work. You can be. Well, and not just mean to people, but I think this is also another common issue or problem in, in architecture is maybe simply because we aren't taught how to run businesses, right. Or or to be that business aspect is there's a lot of burnout. I feel like there's a, even in architecture school and, and a, Partially, I think part part of why you know you we turn into this aspect of a person in in business is because 
architecture school studio is always open. They're always yeah. there. People in the middle of the night. I mean, I remember when I was there, I stayed up for 62 and a half hours. I can totally tell you why you're considered criminally insane when at 75 hours, because it's 62 and a half, like you, you are hallucinating. You yeah. see things you, I mean, you're you're a danger to yourself. And so you, it's almost like some of that has started in architecture school. Um, but then it goes into business. And I feel like it's, you can be really busy and take on a lot of work and a lot of projects. And then they take longer than they're supposed to. And you have new work coming on board and it ends up just being a lot of deadlines and putting out fires. And, you know, I've learned a lot about business over, over the years since then, but I had a guest on my podcast, who's a contractor, uh, who I thought was hilarious because he said, you know, my day ends at like three or four o'clock. I, I think he, he works like 12 hour days and he gets up at 3am and works till 3pm, but his day ends at three o'clock, right? That's family time. That's when you go home and you do whatever. And he's like, I don't put out fires. I'm not the fire department. If your building is on fire, call the fire department. Everything else literally can wait. Right. And so it's right. become this culture of just like deadlines and, you know, all this stuff. And reaction, reaction, reaction. Um, one of my favorite books is actually the E-Myth Architect, where um, the architect who partnered with the original E-Myth writer talks about the the way a lot of architecture firms are are run, right? And it's like, we don't put systems in place, which means when someone leaves, there's no new system. There's no system for someone to follow when they get hired. Mm -hmm. And then you end up just churning and burning through those people too, because they come in, they've got a new way to do it. Then every, you know, it's like every time you do it, it's like all over again, right? Instead of setting up these systems, which as architects, we probably don't love because we're creative people. We want to create something new every time, but it's like, no, you, you know, in order to not be in the churn and burn cycle where you're going to burn yourself out, you need to have some of these things as, as you know, and I always thought that was kind of enlightening. Like it does make time for you to do the stuff that you enjoy, which is design, uh -huh. designing a new way to run your office every time is not design. It's just work. Yeah. And what, you know, it's funny that actually translates into academia as well with, you know, some, you know, professors coming in and out or new professors for different courses or things like that. Like it happens a lot with having to reinvent or kind of going back to the drawing board about teaching essentially the same sort of stuff. So I can, I understand that. And you know, on that topic also, that place that I was working at where I said it was just unhealthy, I never felt ownership of what I was doing because I kept going to the different projects that were run by the different project managers and just kind of helping where it was needed because there was a fire, right? Like you said, I found now that I'm, you know, so I'm not my own boss per se, but I have my own courses that I teach that are my courses. I'm the coordinator of these courses. So they're mine, at least that's how I look at them. And then with career advising, I'm the only career advisor. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, uh, institutional history before me with career advising. Like I kind of set up a lot of the systems that we're doing now. And having that feeling of ownership has cre creates excitement for me because it's mine. And I, I want to do the best job I can because it's, it's going to reflect on me and it's having a better product is what I want to do. And that can translate anywhere, right? Like in, in, in industry or in any small task that you're doing day to day or like huge tasks or things like that. So I've, I might be working just as much or just as hard as I was working at that other firm I was mentioning, but I'm doing it because I'm excited about the work that I'm doing and it's not causing burnout because um, again, this, this idea of, of, of ownership. Now I'm not, I, I'm not really working like 60, 70 hours a week like I was then, but this idea of it's mine has really changed my outlook on the things that I do. And I want to do the best job I can um, at these different tasks that I'm doing. So does that, I mean, that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense. And, and even in the same thing, it's like, you know, I often recommend that people read business books and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm not in business for myself. I'm like, no, but if you understand how the business works, it gives you a different perspective on those things. Right. And so then you can take ownership of the piece that you have because you can 
believe that you're, you're helping to build the company. It makes you a better employee if you understand mm-hmm. that. Right. And so, right. and, and you can take ownership of your small piece, right? Because this is the part of the puzzle that you put together because they need X, Y, or Z. And, or this is the part that you're really good at and that you've decided to become really good at that because it makes the whole system work really well. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I definitely understand that. Um, and I only teach, well, right now, I actually think I'm only teaching one class. I used to teach two, um, but I, I'm only teaching one class. But it it was interesting because um, I taught the the energy version um, through, they had a sustainability center at the time. And the head of the architecture department took my class to learn this stuff. And then was like, you have to come teach for the architecture department. And they had this um, certificate that you could get if you were part of the architecture or construction department and you had to take classes kind of in each department. So I always thought was really cool because I think that it's invaluable to have construction classes and architecture classes, you know, for, for both, just like you said that you teach architecture classes to your engineering students. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, so I was teaching two, two different classes. Now I'm just teaching the, the design end of it because the construction department went through a whole change in pre-shift and whatever the certificate program doesn't exist anymore. Um, but I then moved to New York for three years with my husband's job and I wasn't here enough to teach a regular class. And so she picked up my class and had somebody else teach it. And she was like, they taught it so different than you taught your class. And, oh, you know, and so I, I can completely understand how like you've crafted and designed this class. And maybe now with the technology that we have in the online forums or something, someone could teach my class from this system that I set up, but, mm-hmm. um, they just, She's like, I need you to come back. Can you teach it virtually? <laughs> so um, we actually teach it as a hybrid class now. Uh, she teaches the in-person part and I teach the the online part of it. And it's been phenomenal because I bring um, everyday field experience to the class, which she loves and, and a, a real push towards, um, you know, the sustainability aspect and being able to take a plan and look at it differently and understand the physics of the building. And she, because she's in academia is great with like, set up this quiz, set up our forum, teach them the basics of how a building goes together so that we can teach them then how they need to change it, you know? And so it's, it's this great tandem class that we teach together, which is so much fun, but um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I teach um, one of the courses I teach is a um, history and theory of architecture it's a 100 level course. It's for gen. It's for uh, it's a gen ed course for for non architects essentially. And I took this course on from a previous instructor who took it from a previous instructor who took it from the person who actually created the course way back uh, a few years earlier. She actually um, published a book on on the course. It's a really interesting way to teach history and theory where it's not linear per se. It goes through a series of topics, and within the topic, it's linear, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you do I don't know how your history of, of architecture was when you were in school, but you don't get to the fun stuff until like the last week of class, right? Because there's so much history. You know, you talk, you, you, you learn about rocks for like months about, you know, the Stonehenge and all that stuff. And I'm like, I want to learn about more than just rock. Anyway, but I teach that class, but it took, what I decided to do is I went back. Fortunately, there was a series of videos because they, they offer it online as well, like an asynchronous course that's recorded. So I watched the videos of the original instructor teaching the class and I watched all, um, however many lectures, there's um, I think 24, 25 lectures, uh, 75 minutes a piece. And I'm like, this is how her vision of the course is. I'm going to do my best to keep it to her original vision, but it's my course now. So like, you know, I've changed the slides up a little bit and I, you know, there's, I have different interests in certain topics and, um, but my idea here was like, I want it to be as close to her vision as possible to kind of do respect to the course. Um, but at this point now I've been teaching this class for, uh, six or seven years now and it's, it's become my course now, but like, it still has that flavor from her, from the original version of it. And I, I love teaching it cause, um, it gives me a platform to talk to a lot of students. It's kind of funny. It's a, it's 130 students. So I just get to go up there and, and, and talk to them and I have a platform. You teach it in the forum? No, I, it's usually in, um, it was never in form, but I had it in Thomas once. And then it, now it's in Willard. They actually have classrooms that are big enough for it in Willard. 
I can't remember where my architectural history class was. Um, and in fact, there was a ancient civilizations class. Was that what it was? That was only offered like once every four years. So it was basically only offered like once when you were in, in class. And so I got to take that as well um, as, as a gen ed, which was really exciting because I love history and I love yeah. the history of all of it. But I had to take like a landscape architecture or history of landscape architecture where we talked about like central park and all that stuff um i took that in the forum oh, which yeah. was you know uh, there were a lot of people in that class yeah so, and they used to give a lot of pop quizzes because they could never tell if you came to class so they would give a lot of pop quizzes to make sure you showed up i do I do this thing in this class where it's very old school in that, because I don't know if you know, they, now they have these things called clicker questions where the student at the bookstore buys this clicker that then in their courses, like if there's something that pops up on the board, they can click the answer and that, that registers as attendance, right? Oh. But I didn't want to make my students do that. But what I ended up doing is I print out a piece of, literally just a piece of paper with four colors on it. And then about every 15, 20 minutes of the 75 minute lecture, I put up a, a mental break on the board. And it's just like, it has to do with the topic, but not really about that. Like one, like one time I'm talking about the French revolution and how they changed to a 10 day week and something weird about that. And I say like, it, it brings up the idea of, of a leap year. And I said, which of these celebrities was born on a leap day or something like that. It's something really dumb, but it helps me stop talking because you can't 75 minutes straight of talking is just too much. And it helps the students kind of wake up. And like, I wasn't sure how that would go, but every year I get consistent feedback that those are the best way that students love that because it gives them like that mental break and they're back in, like right when that's over, where they're back into like learning about whatever I was teaching. Like they, it helps that fatigue, I guess you could say. I think that's a great idea because we, our attention span isn't that long, right? And even if you're super interested in, in it, 75 minutes of history is still just a lot of information, yeah. right? It's just like a lot to take in. And for you to talk for 75 minutes is, I mean, I've done it because I've done presentations that are like 90 minutes long. Um, and at the end, and I also am a really fast talker. And so I've had people say like, talk slower. Yes, <laughs> because, I get that all the time. But it's like, mm -hmm. You were trying to get as much information in as possible. So I love the idea of a mental break. I'm going to start building that into my webinar series. It's like yeah. mental break, like just some kind of like pop up. Hey, you, are you still here? Are you still listening? Okay. Right. Like take a deep breath. Like <laughs> here's your pause. Um, because that's a great idea because it's just, otherwise it's, it's too much. It's too much information. It's too, it's too long. It's too, you know, I should do that. Um, on our Thursday night BS and beer shows, we should, we should have like a, a mental break or like a beer break. Right. So like, yeah. here's, here's where everybody needs to stop and go get, you know, water, beer, whatever you're drinking, go to the bathroom. Right. Here's your, here's your, here's your 30 second interval to yeah. stop and then come back. Yeah. That, that it works really well. And what's funny talking about the history being boring. I, I tell everybody the first day of that class, some of you are going to find some topics interesting, other topics not so interesting, and vice versa for other students. There's only so much I can do to make this interesting because it is, you know, we do talk about rocks, I, uh, to use that reference again. And at the end of the semester, we get SRTEs, which is the student, I forgot what that stands for, but it's basically like student teacher evaluation or, or something. Mm -hmm. And consistently, I get the comment that says, Ross did as best as he could to make this stuff interesting. <laughs> like, and I, I'm like, that's a, that's the best, that's the best feedback I could get. He just tried really hard to make the boring stuff exciting. And that to me, like that's, that's, that's a win. <laughs> he tried really hard to make rocks interesting. Although right. I, I thought that, uh, you know, rocks were cool. I could have totally yeah. gone to school and been in geology. So. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to mix, you know, for those rock lovers out there, I don't mean to. Uh, no, but it's a rock. perfect just, example. <laughs> it's it's just, perfect. there's so many of them. There's just too many rocks. <laughs> it makes me now at this point in my career, want to take one of those classes again, like want to yes. sit in and audit one of those classes because of a different appreciation for yep. it. I, I, I know so much more now than I knew then I'm interested in so much more now than I was then, you know, and it's so hard because a lot of people go to architecture school at 18 or, yes. I mean, just go to college in general at 18. And we are a 
pro-college country. So we tell a lot of people to do that. And we've been talking a lot in the construction industry about how many opportunities there are in the built environment, right? Because it's not just construction or engineering or architecture. There's so many experiences. And sometimes it takes people 10 years to get to that place that they want to go. And there are there's a lot of debt. There might be a lot of stress. There might be a lot of investment. You and I talked a little bit about this before we started recording, which is how many architects are still architects now, right? After how many of them got licensed first off, and then how many are still practicing architecture five to 10 years out from it? And are some of those people practicing architecture even though they don't like it because you've invested 10 years and in the practice of architecture, it's not just, you know, just like we were talking about at our previous jobs and over time and stuff, it feels like it's a big investment aside from just having a nine to five job that you went to. It's a really hard, stressful, usually a lot of overtime again, just, you know, ways that people run their businesses, but also to just, just the environment, right. That it is. Do pe- are people still architects because they feel like after 10 years, they can't do something else? Like That's where I was. So, you know, after that, um, that job that I was mentioning that, that had a bit of in Gainesville that was, you know, work, work, work and kind of um, unhealthy. I went here to state college and I specifically chose I had two options of jobs. That I got two offers, which was great. One of them was kind of be- going under the wing of, of a small practice. And the guy was like, you're, I'm going to groom you to become like my number two. And like, eventually when I retire, maybe this could become your practice. And to most people, that's super exciting. Right. The other job that I was offered was a corporate, not corporate job, but it was a very large scale firm with a small satellite office here in state college. And they did medical work and it was more of a nine to five clock in clock out type thing. But because of my previous experience at that, like, you know, 70 plus hour a week job, I knew that if I went with the small practice, it was going to be similar, you know, with a different energy and probably, you know, again, having a feeling of ownership that I was probably missing. But another fact, which everybody's different, but my wife was opening a company and I wanted to support her with the opening of the company. I didn't want to be spending too much time at my, at my job. So I took the corporate job, but that's kind of what led to this fatigue and this idea of like, oh my God, I've been in this industry. At that point, it was 2008, 2009. So that's literally, like you said, 10 years after starting on my undergrad, right? So that's at that point where I'm like, okay, I'm on my way to licensure, uh, almost done with it. And I've been in this for so long. Like, what else am I going to do now? Like, where am I going from here? And that's what led, you know, I was in state college and that led me to, to really think about what I wanted out of this career and what I was good at. And I told you that I discovered at that point that I was good at organization. I was good at project management, but I also enjoyed conversations. I enjoyed um, how things got put together and I enjoyed going to meetings surprisingly because I got to interact with, you know, other design professionals and, and engineers. And I was in state college, which of course, as you know, is all Penn state all the time. And I'm like, what if I were to pursue a grad program, assuming, you know, that, that we can make that work with our family. And that's what led to that decision. And I, I knew I wanted to get into teaching. So that's what brought me into teaching. And um, I basically kept my foot in the door after grad school and I never looked back. And now I've been 10 years later. So I started in 2010. Um, we're, we're 10 years in and now I'm, I've been teaching longer than I was practicing, um, which is surreal to think about. I was looked at myself as a practitioner that got into teaching and now I'm more of a teacher than anything. And the career advising to kind of circle back to that, the department head, he knew about my background and he knew about my interest with my graduate research on pro practice. Um, and he knew about, you know, um, all the different jobs that I had. So he decided to offer me, or he thought I would be the perfect person for the career advising role. And I never saw myself in an administrative role like that, but it did seem to make a lot of sense. And it would create, it gave me the the full-time status, which was super helpful for me for like, you know, health insurance, in other words. Um, And my my wife was pregnant at the time. And I was like, this would be nice if I could be full-time and get insurance for us. Um, But that wasn't the only factor. And then um, 
I realized very quickly, like this, it was very fulfilling doing career advising because I basically help our students. And I, I'm the career advisor for the Stuckman School. So it's architects, landscape architects, and graphic design students. And because of this diverse background that I had bouncing back and forth to different firms, different size firms, knowing the, what good firms are and what not so good firms are, um, I can provide a lot of advice to these students um, and help them with licensure um, questions and just how to make a resume and a portfolio. And it's just so fulfilling to connect them with our alumni or industry representatives and get them having those conversations that lead to life-changing or potentially life-changing trajectories of their career. Like what happened with me and, you know, we all kind of have our own little trajectories, but having those conversations and meeting those people early um, can make the biggest difference, right? In, in, in where you end up. So it's really an enjoyable and, and very fulfilling experience being a career advisor. So it was not what I expected when I was in college and I'm, you know, super happy I'm doing this now. Yeah. And it was interesting how you get to, to where you are. And that was one of the things that I thought was, was great. And when Austin recorded with me, he's like, find your network of people right. and like that, that, you know, and so you get to help them kind of start on that journey, find the network, have the people. Um, when I was at Penn state, um, James Wines had started a topical Tuesday lecture series. Um, and my, uh, college roommate and I took it over at some point and we you know, started connecting other departments of Penn State with the architecture department. Because when you really start thinking about it, architecture does touch every other aspect of life. And so it's important that we also know, know about those things. And so mm -hmm. um, interestingly enough for me now, understanding all the things that I do in everyday life and still being super interested in every other discipline, I'm like, Am I just, am I a career student? Like, will I go get back and get my master's degree in, in something else? I mean, I love being an architect and I love what I'm doing now, but I also love teaching and I, I, you know, I like things that are not related to, to everyday practice and business and, and everything. So it's just, it, it just makes you wonder, right? Like what, when we're at this point in our life where we're now we've connected with the things that we know and we like, and we're good at or whatever, is it, does it just take that long? <laughs> like, yeah. Is it just not something that you can teach when you're, when you're that yeah. age? Are you just not, do you just not know enough to be open and receptive to those things? Like we talked about the pro practice class where we just not like, if I took that class now. Oh my God. Yeah. So useful. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, so helpful. That would be so helpful. And Going back to the history class too, I remember sitting in my history class saying like, why do I care about this dude Vitruvius? I do not care about Vitruvius. Like he's super old, right? He's like, like whatever. He's, why would I care <laughs> about this dude? And then now I teach Vitruvius in that history class. And I try to explain to the students, trust me, like his theories and his, his discussion of architecture is still relevant today. And I didn't really appreciate learning about him or just in general about architecture until I came back to teach this history class I remember I, I told you I watched those lectures and as I'm watching the lectures I'm like oh yeah all that makes so much sense now but at the time I just did not you know like anybody else you're just kind of like I, I don't care about this dude like show me the the Frank Gehry stuff like you know what I mean like I don't you know yeah it, it makes you wonder in other disciplines like do they have the same thing is it like is it just a growth mentality is it just you know age and practice and experience and the things that you do in your life that that gets you here and should what you be teaching not necessarily teaching in general but the concept be that even if you've been in it for 10 years it's perfectly acceptable to take a left turn 10 years from now yeah. and do something that's completely different than what at 18 seemed like the coolest idea right like what do you really know at 18 right like i feel like you go to architecture school at 18 and you've signed away like i will be a a, a dedicated architect for the rest of my life right cuz that that's the other thing that people one, you always run into people who are like, oh, I was going to go to architecture school, but like, there's something about that. Something about architecture school. Don't know why. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, usually it's followed by, but I'm not any good at math, which I always find really interesting. Um, yes. <laughs> why that's the secondary uh, comment. Not always, but, but a, a lot. I hear that. Um, 
that they were always going going to to do that um but that you you know you you just don't don't know at 18 what you'll right. be good at and you put in a ton of hours and everyone thinks like i'm going to be this famous architect like you, they taught you at virginia tech right i'm going right. to be this famous architect and i'm going to build all these buildings and so everybody in the world thinks that architects are are like the the top 10 most famous architects in the world yeah. who actually make tons of money the rest of us don't make a lot of money we do it because we enjoy it yeah and so and we enjoy it so much that a lot of practicing architects are either a can't retire because they never figured out all of the business part or just love it so much that they will continue to dabble with it because it's a passion, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not, if you're not the second person, don't continue to be an architect. If, if right. it's not something that makes you love it, then, then your calling is doing something different, right? Yeah. And it is interesting this, what you, what the public sees as architects or what, how the public perceives architecture or, or an architect versus like another profession, like a doctor or a lawyer, right? Like if you ask anybody like on the street, like name, you know, a famous architect, they'll say, you know, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright, Frank Gehry, whatever. But, it, you know, they don't understand that that's, that's not the typical, you know, industry. And it, it, what's, what's, uh, what's funny is I was thinking about this earlier today, and this is kind of random as I was thinking about this, but the field of like medicine you choose probably pretty early in your medical career, like what your focus is going to be, right? So it's kind of like with architecture where, well, actually the not really like architecture because architecture you're taught as a generalist and then you kind of find your way in the profession. But in a uh, medical profession, you have to figure out what you're going to focus on in your education of it, right? So like, I, I this is super random and I'm probably going to be embarrassed that I brought this up on a podcast, but it was, I saw a foot doctor today and I thought on my way out of the door, when I was driving home, I was like, so this guy, he chose to just be a, like, in, into like a feet, a foot guy for the like, rest of his life. Like that's literally what he's going to have to do. He can't go anywhere else with his career, right? Like he's got to be like, he's just going to be a foot doctor for the rest of his life. He's going to look at feet for forever. You have to make that decision at some point. And I was thinking how that relates to architecture and just like, you don't have to make that decision because you can kind of go back and forth to these different things and kind of find your way uh, as you find all these different um um, what you're good at and what you're interested in. So kind of what you're just talking about that you can kind of take a left turn all of a sudden. Yeah. So it's, always, it's just, I don't know if it's a thing about architects, but um, the people are fascinating, right? And yeah, the buildings right. are fascinating and the history and how it all came together. And maybe it's just a way our minds work, or maybe it's, I don't know when I was talking with Steve Basic, it was the same, you know, just, just talking with him about that part of it is, is, is fascinating and interesting and why we keep doing it. Right. Yeah. It's just this, there's, there's so much diversity in, in architecture and what it touches, right. Yeah. Like all of that. So, um, yeah. Anyway, we could talk about Penn State architecture school, uh, our careers as architects, uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, as I told you off screen, one of the first people I worked with was from Virginia Tech as, a, as an architect. She used to always talk about Blacksburg and going there. And so, um, you know, so many cool things. And, and the fact that Penn State's campus, I haven't been there in so long, like you haven't been back to, to Virginia Tech in so long, probably looks completely different mm -hmm. than what I expected. Um, it was a pleasure to do the small firm practice seminar with you. I feel like um, maybe it's because of the pandemic that we've had to do some of these things, but we've accessed people who are in different places. Like part of the reason I haven't been at Penn State in a long time is because I no longer live in Pennsylvania. But that if an intern or a, or a student graduating wanted a, a job and wanted to work for a small firm practice, the ability to do little webinars and just say like, hey, we're out here, we're doing these things because there are a lot of small practice architects out there who might grow their practice with one person at a time or something. Mm -hmm. um, access to that as a student is invaluable to, you know, to connect with the people who are in the public. Where do they want to go? You know, I had asked Austin then I was like, well, how did you end up where you are? You know, you're from Pennsylvania. Like, how'd you end up not in Pennsylvania anymore? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting, you know, 
another person from my graduating class is now in Maine. Neither of us were from Maine. Like, how did we both end up here? So, um, right. so access to that and being able to do it digitally is, is really cool. Again, That's... you never know if people are interested in it right at that young age. <laughs> right. Well, that's, that's what, um, so part of my job as career advisor is, is doing the, our annual, we call it career day, but it's, it's basically a career fair, but it brings together people usually in person to talk to our students. And that's how Austin, um, from the, when I was listening to the podcast, he said, you know, he met them at, at the career fair early and he knew early on, that's who I want to go work for. Cause he was interested in residential construction, um, or design. And, um, like you said, with this pandemic, besides this career fair, this, I, I've done a series of a monthly series of these webinars or these, um, I wouldn't even call them webinars. They're, they're more informal seminars that you saw, because it was nice to actually have some, some sort of engagement with the students as opposed to a typical webinar, but having people kind of zoom in to call, you know, to use zoom, like, and just come in from anywhere has really kind of expanded networking and connecting. And I'm looking forward to the future of continuing with this sort of stuff to have some hybrid events of in-person um, remote type seminars. And that will get people like you who aren't close to Pennsylvania into our classrooms or into our lecture halls. And maybe those connections can lead, you know, those students, you know, those students would never have seen you um, in a, in a pre-pandemic situation because you're not going to come all the way from Maine to, to Happy Valley to, to do a one hour lecture right? Or a one right. hour seminar. Right. But this is hopefully going to open up, you know, those sorts of, of networking opportunities and, and potentially, potentially job opportunities for, for students and for, for alumni to kind of reconnect with their, with Penn State. Or, well, you know, their- I also think it's a great opportunity for alumni to do a one hour session via Zoom, where it's a webinar or whatever, to introduce students to the varied disciplines that are out there. So, I mean, I'm a residential architect, but I'm not just a residential architect. I am a high performance residential architect, which is not even... I don't even know, like 20%, 10% of the residential market. So, you know, that's, you know, having me on and having another residential architect on, we have two different, you know, practices or bigger firms. You know, the firm that I worked for in Washington, DC was strictly residential. It was a wonderful firm to work at. They do large residential structures, you know? And so having a whole lot of variety or, you know, even tapping into what architecture students have done since then to talk about the careers that they've taken on with their degree in architecture, because that was what I always wondered when I was an architecture student is you could graduate after four years with a BS in architecture or something like that. Uh So it wasn't a professional degree, but it was a, was a degree. But it always made me wonder, like, what do you do with that? What are you qualified to do with that degree? Like, where, where do you go? And so it, it would be really interesting to hear just, you know, what, what have other people done? You know, have they gone into product design, which, you know, packaging and product design, a lot like architecture, visually interesting, but a much smaller scale, or, you know, have they gone on to be code enforcement officers? Have they gone to art school? Have they, you know, done, um, I talked to an architect earlier today who will be on the podcast next week, uh, who, or when you hear this recording the week before, so go back to last week's, (laughs) um, (laughs) last week's recording, who, uh, was an architect. And then during the, the downturn in architecture, he, um, he actually went to work for a company, that does ventilation systems. So he works for Zender and, you know, he, it, the market was bad. And then he started doing weatherization and energy improvements, right. Cause there was money to do that. And then thought like, Oh, well, what else? And then went on to work for Zender. Right. And so he was trained as an architect. He was working as an architect and now he works for a mechanical company because it was, you know, the circuitous route to how he got there for, for a couple of years, I did large scale energy engineering projects, which was mostly the mechanical engineering with spreadsheets. I personally don't love spreadsheets enough to have continued to do that. The design part of me still really wanted to create things and, and do smaller scales, but I could see how 
because of our project management skills, which you can acquire as an architect working in these firms, that somebody might be great at that job and mm-hmm. maybe not really want to design. Or even the firm that I worked at in Washington, D.C., there were two architects that owned the practice. One was the design architect and one was the business architect. And they worked great together yes. because they both knew what their skills were. A lot of those firms that I worked at, I, I, I think you had mentioned that in a previous podcast with, um, I forgot his name now, um, not the Austin one, but it was a more recent one. Anyway, you were saying that that you, you've heard that before and a lot of the firms I worked at there was the 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 guy who got who did the most of the design work and was out there getting clients and going to the the meetings and then there was the office manager who Mm -hmm. did the day-to-day tasks and and organized the 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 office and and kind of was the like ground base person like the one that was you know at the base camp while the while the other guy was out doing you know the architecty stuff and most of those firms, the ones that had a good dynamic I and mean, that had a good relationship that way were very well run. It was very apparent that they were just very, it was very well run. And the, the firms that I worked at that it didn't have that dynamic were the ones that seemed a little bit off to me because there's just one guy who was in charge or, or, or woman who was in charge. And then like, it, it was a little bit, um, it, it didn't seem as, as well put together. So I think you do need that like partnership in, in our industry. Yeah, I think having that partnership in our industry is really a a great way to do it because just like you're not going to be a good architect at every style of architecture that's out there, I also think that there comes a point in your career where you have to realize you're also not good at every aspect of, you know, a lot of businesses are started because you have a technical skill, which I think is part of the reason why a lot of, there are a lot of sole practitioner architects because we have the skill to practice architecture. But you might be good at business, you might be good at design, you might be good at, you know, construction documents and the technical aspects of putting stuff together. Like there are so many skills within the skill set, right? And so when you become the business owner, you then have to wear all the hats if you're the sole practitioner and you're not going to be good at all of them. Mm-hmm. You're not going to enjoy all of them, right? Mm-hmm. If I have to sit down and draft now, it takes me so long to get anything done because I don't draft all day long. As the owner of the business, I'm no longer drafting 95% of the time. So when I do have to draft, it takes a long time because there are 5,000 other decisions and things that have to be done during the practice. And I realized early on that I don't really love sitting at the desk all day long drafting. That wasn't going to be what I was good at, but I've worked Mm -hmm. with other people who don't want to talk to clients. They want to sit, they want to draft, they want to do the technical stuff. They love the technical part of the program. They love understanding how the building goes together but they don't want to do the, the, you know, big picture entrepreneur, win new work, talk to clients, do, you know, that aspect of it either. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's cool. The things that you can do. So, yeah, sure. But we could talk all day long. Anyway, I usually try to keep these to, to about an hour. I think we've been going a little bit longer than an hour. Uh, and so I just want to say thank you so much for coming on today. Um, you're welcome to come back anytime and talk about architecture school uh, because training the trades, both, you know, engineering, architecture, you know, ventilation, mechanical, uh, construction, plumbing, electrical, everything that could be part of a, a, um, a built environment has become really a thing that the built environment is talking about right now because there's labor shortages in you know every mm-hmm. industry and so you know anything you want to come back and talk about uh, I'm happy to have you on so thank you for well, your time today. no it was it was great I appreciate you inviting me to to join you on this and I feel like I might have bounced a lot with different conversations but I think we we covered a lot of a lot of areas and it was a very nice um conversation for sure. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guest, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.